You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to the 602 Club, but it, the 602 Club from Earth 3629501, and I am just one of your, well, I, I'm, I'm still Matthew Rushing here, just one of the hosts, and with me is Christy Morris, and Christy, you look just the same as you do in the other universe. Oh, not uh, paper thin like I'm from the Renaissance? No, strangely enough, I thought that you might, but you do have a very avant-garde art style here. So I, I love it, though. It's fantastic. Yeah, you know, it's it's very fun. Uh, I like to go late at night into the Guggenheim and cause some ruckus. What about fantastic. you? Fantastic. You're looking, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a little uh, rock and roll. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to dive into all that we have to talk about here with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. They legitimately, I think, have given us a tour de force of things to talk about. This movie is jam-packed with stuff. But before we dive in, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We have so much fun doing this show, and we hope you enjoy listening. Uh, If you do, As always, you can help us out by subscribing wherever you are listening to this. So uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, all of those type of places, Google Podcasts, whatever. uh, You'll get the shows as soon as they drop. And of course, if your podcatcher of choice allows you to review and rate podcasts, please do that for us as well. It, It continues to help the show grow whether that's in any of those platforms, um, it makes a huge difference. You can also follow us and share the show with your friends over on social media, places like Twitter. We're at the 602 Club. We'd enjoy your follow. We'd really appreciate that. Christy and I can interact with you there as well, as well as Zach. Uh, And of course, uh, you can do the best thing you can do for a podcast, which is word of mouth, digital word of mouth, really helps so you can do that as well you can also find us on instagram at the 602 club tfm the entire network is on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm you've got the entire website as well over at trek.fm and of course you can find us on the listeners only discussion group on facebook called the babel conference you can join there and talk to listeners from all over the world And last but not least, one of the most important things that if you enjoy what we do here on TFM, please go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team. You know, this is a big network. We're trying to do a lot and we can't do it without listeners just like you. And so become part of our team over at Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. So Christy, this movie, you know, we got to spend time with Gwen in the first movie. But this movie, we actually start with Gwen, which allows us to be able to get further into her backstory as well as to where her life currently is and what leads her 
to Spiderville, uh, you know, and beating being part of Miguel's team. And so I wanted to ask you about that and how you felt uh, about that idea of like, I'm not sure coming into this, this is where I thought we would start the movie. Yeah, I, I would say the best part of it is definitely when she finally gets to the real meat of her story and talks about um, when she keeps referring to, but I'm not the only one. That was a great point because it really drives home that Miles is part of this, that she's part of it with him, that no one is unaffected. Um, And so I like that they kind of use that as a tool to reintroduce us to the world and to show how they've been affected by previous events and now are separated. Um, The one thing I thought, though, was that it was a little too long of an intro focus solely on Gwen when you're thinking this is really supposed to be Miles's story. So that kind of took away from it a little bit for me. But um, I thought that, you know, like I said, that one point was really a good one. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I felt like it was too long. I, I think it was just a surprise, you know, in all honesty, you had no idea how we were going to come in to the movie, you know, and mm-hmm. I really appreciated that we, you know, we alluded to the fact that she couldn't save her best friend. Um, But for her, this big moment was her friend trying to basically be special, you know, and Mm -hmm. willing to put his body through an incredible amount of changes and it turns him into a monster instead. You know, and instead of just being who he is and being happy with who he is, you know, and I thought that that was such a fascinating place to begin this film. And then, you know, I think it was also important because it gave us that opportunity to see how this dissolves the relationship with their father to the point that she would want to leave her world and join this, you know, spider force team. Mm-hmm. And to be somewhere else because she doesn't feel like she has anybody on her world who's on her side. And to me, that was all very effective. And I also appreciated it, too, because it allows the character of Gwen to have such agency, you know, and and there's no way in which I think that she's just there to be a love interest or any of those kind of things. She is a character no. in and of her own right, you know? And so I really appreciated the, this, this beginning. And I think that it was also very cool because it also introduces us to the fact that each of these universes that we are going to visit is going to have a different look and feel to it, which I thought was also really special. I mean, just visually, we started off in a world that's it's surrounded and made up of and instead of the artwork that we got in uh, the previous uh, Spider-Verse film, you know, it's a watercolor world and mm-hmm. it's it's gorgeous, you know. So I, I think all of that was just a, a, a really cool way of beginning the film but i also feel like and i I don't know if you agree with this but i think it set the tone for the fact that this movie was going to be moodier than the first film 
It, it does definitely do that. I mean, I will say for sure with her talking about the loss that they've dealt with and, um, you know, showing even though I felt like it was a little long, the, you know, band scene, especially where she keeps saying, I'm fine. And everyone's saying, clearly, you're showing signs that you're definitely not fine. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that, too. And, I mean, to echo your point, the whole design for Gwen's world was based on the fact that she's going through some serious things in her life. And so it kind of feels like life isn't real to her, at least where she is. No, absolutely. And I was reading a little bit about uh, the behind the scenes design work. And, you know, they talked about the way in which it allows the the way that they colored the world with watercolors allows her to basically be a mood ring for the scene. So mm -hmm. whatever she's feeling is extrapolated then into the color profile that's happening, which I thought was really cool. And And again, it just... It's one of the things that I think we'll probably talk a lot about as we work through this uh, discussion of the film. There's so much thought that's going into every single part of this movie. And that's just one of the things which I think comes across just in this beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I will say as far as the art overall... I just have to go ahead and give a huge plug to Lord and Miller and then, you know, the entire animation team, because, I mean, both the first movie and this movie have really broken the mold when it comes to how the movie is made and really made you feel like you're within a comic book. And then also added all of these other things that you can't do in the comic book medium. So I I do really want to say that they they've done something that's never been done before and is so visually stunning and unique in all of the different worlds, you know, that they actually yeah. set out to make sure each of the six different worlds they visit looks completely different from the other. Uh, well, and then, you know, we see those scenes in the Spider-Verse, you know, and in, in, in what I like to call Spider-Phil is this, this, you know, we've got thousands upon thousands thousands of spider people and they mm -hmm. all look different they're all in a different animation style you know mm -hmm. and it's just, it, it, the amount of painstaking work that that would take is just i think incredible and so um another thing that i think i was really struck by is that you know once we get to the miles morales part here at the beginning about how much this movie is kind of about him trying to balance responsibility that he has as spider-man with the desires that he has you know part of that is you know him trying to go to school keep his parents in the dark and live up to his potential as spider-man and even his potential outside of being spider-man you know he's a smart kid and he wants to go to you know a big school like princeton where he can you know study quantum theory and all this type of stuff mm -hmm. um and I was really struck by this is that, you know, one of the reasons that Spider-Man was created was to give, you know, Stan Lee the ability to create a superhero who had very different problems because he was a teenager, you know, and what would it be like to have all of this incredible power 
and still be a teenager and have to deal with all these teenage things like growing up and, you know, uh, trying to figure out who you are and then thrusting this enormous amount of power on you and then trying to figure out with who you are in light of that. I mean, I think this movie might be the best in the sense of understanding what it means to be Spider-Man and truly struggling to be a teen superhero uh, because it would be immensely difficult. Oh, incredibly. And I mean, you know, also adding in the wanting to have a girlfriend and then you're split across dimensions. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's not a normal teenage human problem to have oh yeah my girlfriend's on another earth (laughs) talk about the other side of the tracks yeah (laughs) so i i love too that moment that he gets with gwen where they're really saying we are the only people that understand what each other is going through because nobody else you know other than her father knows that they are spider-man or spider-gwen um and knows what all they've been through than each other. And that's just in their superhero personas. You know, like you said, they've also got all of the regular pressures of trying to live up to their parents' expectations. um, And Miles trying to prepare to go to college. It's uh, also interesting, I think, showing the perspective of the cultural background of Miles, you know, that uh, I love the joke that they threw in there of uh, his um, counselor saying, oh, immigrant parents. And she's like, we're from Puerto Rico, which is part of America. <laughs> like, we're actually not immigrants. Yeah. I, so. No, I agree with that. I, I love them subtly, uh, I think, making fun of this idea that Everybody needs to play up some sort of victimhood, you know, where like right. upon like, oh, I'm 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 so less than when, you know, you see what his parents have made themselves. She's a nurse and, you know, he's about to be made captain of police there, yeah. you know, and, and so like, no, and their child is a genius. So it's, it's right. Yeah, that that was ridiculous um, that the only way to make yourself stand out is to make yourself less instead of like be proud of what you've accomplished. That just is ridiculous. And I like that they go against that, though, you know, that they tell her they're like, actually, (laughs) that's not true. So, you know, they're they're wanting to be proud of their accomplishments and not be part of that. I think another big part of this, too, and you just kind of hit on that is that. You know, it's not just about Miles growing up, but it's about the changing relationship that he does have with his parents as he's moving forward and they're having to then move forward to figure out what that relationship looks like as he grows up. And I loved that because it's so interesting to me that this this movie is just as much as what it means to be a parent as it does to be one of these heroes. Right. And and mm-hmm. what decisions do you make as a parent to be there for your child and help them grow up in the way that they should. And, and, and I, I thought that was great because, you know, this, this movie is, is, is very much about how do you prepare your child to be out there in the world? And then what are they going to do with what they've been given, you know, and both Gwen Mm -hmm. and Miles are having to deal with that. 
And so, you know, here we, we see again the responsibility and desire of parents, right? It's like you've got the responsibility and desires of like Miles and Gwen with their powers and what they want to do and, and where they want to go and all that stuff. But then you have the same thing on their parents, right? You you have responsibilities towards how you raise your kid, but then you have those desires for what you want to see for them and the fear that, you know, people aren't going to love your child the way that you do, which, you know, unfortunately, they're not, you know, nobody's mm-hmm. going to love your kids the way that you love your kids. And so, um, and having to come to a place where, You've hopefully raised your child in a way that they know who they are and what their worth is and what their value is and that they can then, you know, live that out and won't take less um, is, you know, all of that. I just think it's so cool that we've so much in this film on that. They did spend a lot of time on the relationship that Miles has with his parents. And I think that rightfully so, you know, he's at this crucial point, which I mean, you know, how poignant it is that we're right around everyone's graduation time of year as we're recording this. That's um, a good point. Yeah. <laughs> where where every parent is trying to figure out how to let go. And that's exactly what they're doing. You know, they're hoping that they've given him all the tools he needs, but they're still having trouble not seeing him as their little boy. And I thought that his mother's speech and the way they used that even in the trailer was such a good moment, you know, where she says, I hope that you always know that you're loved and don't let anyone ever tell you that you don't belong where you are. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that does speak a little bit to the fact of who Miles is just as a person and the fact that, you know, he, he comes from a mixed family. Right. And, and, and there are still, unfortunately people who would look down on people like that, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, but what I think is great about the film becomes more that that speech goes to, to mean something so much higher, uh, in the sense that, you know, of Miles being told by everybody who he is and what his story is instead of getting to choose that for himself. And, you know, I I think they utilize that really, really well. And so, and then, you know, I think uh, obviously this film gets to play with the fact of Miles and Gwen's romance in a way that they didn't really get to play too much with in the first film because they didn't have time for that. But I loved the, um, I just love the way that it was handled here because I think it's done with such grace because, you know, they're like 15, she's 16, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, so they're still very young and they're dealing with so many other things. But the beauty of their romance is that it's built on, more than just attraction what it's really built on is that this is somebody who understands who i am what i'm going through and gets me on a a much deeper level than just superficial things of oh i look good in a spandex suit absolutely 
Yeah, their relationship is built on shared experiences. And in this very unique way of being the only other person that knows everything about you. I think that, you know, obviously people say all the time you want the person that you're in love with to also be your best friend. And that's what they've got here. But I also like that they didn't completely lean into the romance side of it and tried something a little bit different where Gwen actually says in most universes, Gwen Stacy always falls for Spider-Man. And then they introduce the idea that maybe she doesn't this time, but that that could be okay too. And just kind of leave it hanging in the air of like, maybe they will, maybe they won't kind of thing, but that they're there for each other when they need each other. Yeah, I got the feeling, I mean, I at least read that one a little bit differently, I think, than you, because I think Mm -hmm. what she was saying is that it doesn't go well for them when they get together because Gwen dies. Right. Um, and most, <laughs> and so I, I think what's interesting is that it, to me, is a, a pin in the argument that's going to get made in the third film, which is that, uh, you know, Miles and maybe the idea of these canon events isn't completely... Um, what we think it is, because just the the fact that Miles and Gwen's romance is here and they are from different universes and they fall in for one another, you know, maybe there's a way that they could be together that wouldn't result in her dying the way that it has in so many other universes. And so that that's right. That's almost like the first salvo in that idea of that maybe things could go differently. And so um, mm-hmm. but. I think you're right in in saying like it's made just as much of that it should be made at this point, you know, because mm-hmm. again, there is so much else going on that to completely get sidetracked with the idea of their romance wouldn't help this film. And right. So, it's like there's so much else going exactly. on that they need yes. to prioritize anyway. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so I wanted to... Okay, so this is something that really struck me. That taking villains seriously is really important in superhero movies. And that in some ways, it's Miles' fault that Spot becomes who he is. Now, not because, you know, Spot was working for Alchemax, you know, and... The consequences of his actions working for them led to becoming who he was as Spot uh, because of the collider accident and having to shut it down in the first movie. Mm-hmm. What I mean is, is that by not taking him seriously, thinking of him as some sort of low-level villain threat and not making every ep- effort to capture him because Miles doesn't really see him as a threat, gives Spot the opportunity to become the biggest threat of all. And it just really reminded me how, you know, we no matter what the crime is, it should be taken as important and, and the correct punishment for that should be given and dealt with or it can easily morph into something so much worse, which is exactly what happens in this film. Well, and I even equate it to just 
problems in general. You know, if you ignore a problem, hoping it'll go Great away, point. they usually just snowball and fester until they explode. You know, it always makes it worse. <laughs> Ignoring it does not make it better. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you're you're exactly right. He it's not that he does what, in Spot's opinion, caused him to become who he is, but that Miles calling him a low-level villain or, you know, whatever term he used in front of him <laughs> and then also just treating him like an annoyance, almost like he's a mosquito he's got to squish and he doesn't really have time for that right now, then does lead to Spot being able to get around any barriers he had and become a much bigger problem than he might have been. Yeah, I love that point that I just... It- you're 100% right in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't even have yeah it's just any problem you know like you got a toothache you just ignore it it's like it's going to get worse you know mm-hmm. it, uh, it so i i could not agree with you more and i really do think that that's something that's so important here and it and it you know it kind of explains in some ways one of the reasons that miguel and his group are so vigilant about guarding what they see as the timeline right is because they don't want a problem to to get to the point where it can't be undone Mm -hmm. and i think this is a small microcosm of that larger part of the story and but i i also kind of think you know this is this is one of those places where i think they just did a really good job of you know miles is still a very young person right and he doesn't see the wisdom of making sure a problem is adequately and completely dealt with always just thinking that oh i'm just always going to have another chance right Mm -hmm. Uh, because sometimes problems can get so out of hand there are no more chances left to fix it And then the only way is through it. And maybe even this is just another angle I just thought of. Maybe even it's Miles getting so overconfident in his own abilities at this point. It's a great point. That he's like, oh, I've got him handled. I've read him from day one. It's fine. And it's not fine. He's misjudging the situation. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think a great thing about this as well is I love Jason Schwartzman's performance as Spot. You know, oh, just yeah. this kind of like put upon, uh, I can't see how this is any anybody's fault but somebody else's other than my own, which is another, I think, you know, really important uh, thread here throughout the film of this idea of we push off responsibility onto somebody else and instead of taking responsibility for our own actions and you know obviously miles was somebody who's dealt with that in the first film and then a little bit throughout this film so i i think all of that really works so well well and one thing i just wanted to throw in real quick too um that i hadn't thought about before until my friend sadiq actually brought it up to me was we're initially introduced with this idea that Spot is the number one villain here. And then the tables turn and you realize that the real villain, at least of this movie, is Miguel. 
And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so true, because you're not expecting that at all through all of this. It's like Miguel is at least looking out for everyone's best interest. Right. And then it's like, actually, he just thinks that Miles has caused everyone's problems and needs to go down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I like that flip where you're going to have to deal with Spot later. But for now, he's actually more kind of the comic relief. And initially, I thought maybe it was Ryan Reynolds' mm-hmm. voice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that's that's so uh, intentional here. And I think what it becomes is, you know, and and the the movie is specifically mirroring so much of the Empire Strikes Back feel. And so when it comes to villains, it's like we th- there's one villain that we think is the problem, but really there's a villain behind that, you know? Mm-hmm. And in the way they do it here though, you know, you think Spot's the villain and then you think Miguel's the villain and you realize really the biggest villain of all is going to be Spot. You know, so it's like they kind of flip back and forth. And mm-hmm. so I like the way that they kind of keep you guessing throughout the entire film in that way. And I think they just do it really well, which I guess leads me to the question then that I have about the whole timeline thing that we deal with in the film and how, you know, Miguel explains how every Spider-Man's story has kind of a canon event, you know, whether it's the the death of a police captain or any you know any of those things the death of uncle ben all of that stuff Mm -hmm. uh and that straying from those events can threaten the very fabric of their spider-verse and of course you know miles realizes that for him it looks like because of this connection with spot that his father's death might actually be a canon event and so the the conundrum here of do we have free will or are some things just like predestined that we could never change is a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that that was the biggest crux of this movie in showing that life events like that can shape you into who you are for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. So... Like you said, like, do we know if it's really free will that got you there or if it was predestined and planned the entire time? And can you change it either way? Um, And I thought that Miles handles that so well that he's like, I actually don't care if you're telling me that it is a canon event because the right thing to do would be to save my dad. And also, you know, clearly it's his dad. He's a little biased about it. He's going to save him because it's his dad. So I thought that that was such a huge moment. And obviously, you know, he knew what he was going to do, but was put in this situation of trying to figure out what was more important that, you know, Miguel is also saying, if you let this one person who is supposed to die, die, you could save countless others or you could save one and kill countless others. So it's also that juxtaposition of, is it for the good of the many or the good of the one? And Miles is like, it doesn't matter. Right. 
Well, and I think uh, so uh, we learn, at least from Miguel, this is what he says, is that Miles is the original anomaly. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, though, it just felt like logically that his story might not actually be like the other spider people in the first place. And right, that if it's an anomaly, it could right. exist on its own. Right. And so then he might not actually have any canon events in his life. I mean, and and then, too, compounding this question was that, you know, we see that Gwen's father quits being a captain. He willingly gives up his job as a cop in that timeline. So is that another possible change to a timeline? But it's a natural one, right? Like there wasn't anything forced in that. And so it just, it, it kind of left me thinking that, you know, when Miles does say, you know, everybody keeps trying to tell me what my story is and I'm going to do my own thing. Well, to me, that seems not just a petulant child thing to say, but it also seemed pretty legitimate that if he is an anomaly, how can you say that anything that he does or is a part of actually is uh, disruption of some sort of canon? Um, and it made me really I think what it did is it did such a great job of making me question everything that Miguel does tell him. Mm -hmm. And so to wonder if there is some sort of, you know, in Narnia, it's called the deeper magic. You know, is there a deeper magic to the Spider-Verse that Miguel doesn't quite understand because he only lives by these hard and fast rules? Mm -hmm. And yes, Certain events really make us who we are. But that's only in hindsight that we know that. And right. so to just say that every spider person would have to go through a similar exact type of thing seems like, well, that's, I don't know if that makes sense. Because it, it seems like, you know, we don't just have to learn lessons the hard way or the same way. Everybody has to learn lessons in their own way. And mm -hmm. so I, I don't know. I, I was just really struck by all of this. And, and it, it what I think is that there is such a philosophical kind of like bent to all of this that I really enjoy. And I'm I'm fascinated to see you know what are we going to do in the third movie to to unravel all of this and they planted a lot of seeds in the first movie to lead us to this second movie i think they've planted a lot of seeds in this second movie that are going to lead us to the conclusion in the third movie which makes me very excited to see how that all fits together as you know one finished puzzle mm-hmm and I did want to add to what you said about we only know life events make us who we are in hindsight. I love thinking about how if you look at what Miguel's motivation is, he is only seeing everyone else's canon events in hindsight. But Miles hasn't happened yet. Right. Yeah. So I love Miles's point that 
how do you know that this is the only way that my life can go? And if you know that this person is possibly about to die, are you going to sit back and do nothing? Because before, at least, each of the different spider people in their timelines didn't know that Uncle Ben was about to die. Right, right. So I love that Miles is challenging Miguel and saying, but if you did know, you're just going to let it happen? Because, well, this is the way that it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm, right. Well, and and I think there's an interesting question, you know, because Miguel goes to another universe where his daughter is alive, mm-hmm. right? And then it, it begins to unravel because of that. Because he wasn't supposed to be there. Because he wasn't supposed to be there. And so it does, you know, again, it does raise those questions of, you know, what what is quote unquote supposed to happen and what's not supposed to happen? And is there, a, how it's the conundrum of understanding how a free will and like a predestination work out, fate, mm-hmm. destiny, all those things. And so, uh, I, and I, I love kind of wrestling with that because Again, I think that the movie does a great job of kind of making points on all sides here, which mm-hmm. I I'm I can't wait to see how then they unravel that right and 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 show us you know because obviously Miles in some way has to be right uh, because I don't think that it would really work for the story for him to not be right on this point, mm-hmm. but. I don't I don't know if you can completely then undermine it to the point where, well, yeah, the Peter Parker that we're so familiar with is shaped by great power comes great responsibility moment for Uncle Ben. Mm-hmm. And so and that did need to happen for Peter to learn that lesson. It was a really hard lesson, but it had to happen. And so. I I think, you know, what we're doing is we're playing through, uh, you know, how far you can take a character like, you know, Miles Morales and have them be um, Spider-Man, but in a different way, you know, and I think that was Mm -hmm. the whole point of creating Miles Morales in the first place is that he is he is Spider-Man, but his story is very different than the others. And that's the one thing that I wonder, and sorry if I'm getting off track, but it is um, going to be what motivates his story in the sequel is maybe that was Peter Parker's canon event, but that doesn't have to be Miles Morales's canon event. Right. I mean, and heck, couldn't. Miles's canon event be learning all this in the first place, you know. Again, yeah, and, maybe and his so, canon event is meeting right. Miguel. <laughs> yeah, you, you could, you never know. So, um, anyway, no, it, it's a great discussion, and I think the, the, one of the things about us being in the middle chapter here is is that we don't have all the answers, so it is kind of just fun to be able to speculate at these questions because the movie raises a lot of issues that we don't know the end to yet. Mm-hmm. So. We do get a lot of different spider people uh, in the film. Um, you know, we have Jessica Drew. We have our Spider-Man from India. We've got our Spider-Punk. 
You know, we've got Miguel Spider-Man from 2099. And so Mm -hmm. what did you think about the introduction of all of these new Spider-People, especially the ones we get to spend the most time with? Um, We've even got a Spider-Man Lego-verse, which is pretty amazing. I loved. Uh, So, yeah, what did you think about all this? I thought that it helped that they focused on a few key people and didn't go too much into all of the other iterations, although they tried to show as many other funny versions as possible. Um, I think if you're going to have any of them mean something, you've got to have three or four and that's it that you really focus on. So I think that was a particular strength. Um, I did think that Spider-Man India is probably my favorite. Um, because he also is kind of the juxtaposition to Peter's story because he hasn't had his canon events happen yet. And actually then Miles saving the girlfriend's father ends up starting Mumbatan to fall apart because that wasn't supposed to happen because the canon event was for, you know, the girlfriend's father to die. So I thought that that was really interesting. And then, you know, just even kind of the funny jokes of saying chai tea, you're saying tea tea (laughs) was cute. Um, And um, just introducing us to some totally different versions that you never imagined before, at least if you haven't read the comics, um, with having Spider-Man India and Spider-Punk was so different. And the animation styles, um, they really reflect their world. Um, and then definitely Spider-Man 2099. I had no idea what the character was about until this movie, but I think definitely having a voice that has such depth um, and ferocity to it as uh, Oscar Isaac was great for this. And really the character design, I think that it was good that they had the original artist come in and animate him for the movie as well. Yeah, I think... All of these are very interesting introductions to, you know, the the Spider-Verse. Um, you know, I think probably the one I disliked the most, though, was the hobby, the Spider-Punk. I was not a huge fan of that character. Oh, really? Uh, Hobie. N- no. Yeah, I just, Hobie just didn't do it for me. Um, the but design I, or the character? Uh, just the character. You know, I, I you know, uh, yeah. It just was not my favorite, Um, but I appreciate the way in which that he was able to help, you know, in the end. I I thought that was really fun, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the little note in case it don't work out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I liked that. And and I I 100 percent agree with you. You know, one, two, I think all the the voice casting here was perfect for all of the characters. Uh, But, you know, casting Oscar Isaac. He is such a great voice. And he has such menace he's able to produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really special the way he's able to bring that to the character. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, and so I really love uh, the way in which they introduce all these characters. And I think you rightly pointed out they spend the right amount of time on each of the characters that needs to be there without getting overwhelmed. Uh, and so I think that's really, uh, 
you know, that's such a fine line because, you know, you want to be able to kind of showcase as much as you can. But I think they also, I mean, this, this is a long movie, but they rightly understand, okay, what they need to be focused on and to not deviate too much to the, ooh, the cool factor of like, look at all the Spider-Man we have uh, because they've got an important story here to tell. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can throw in a T-Rex Spider-Man anytime. Yes. Yeah. It's that true. one was funny. So. <laughs> I I did want to ask you because, you know, we alluded to the idea of that this is the middle chapter um, and, you know, it's definitely channeling the Empire Strikes Back vibe real hard here. Um, and... Everything is darker and moodier, you know, it leaves us on a cliffhanger. Uh, and so how did you feel about the fact that, you know, this movie doesn't have a specific end and does need, you know, a third movie to wrap it all up? It was a little hard ending on such a cliffhanger. Even though we know that we're getting another movie, I do wish there had been a little bit more resolution there rather than just feeling like I'm in the middle of a TV show and the next episode's coming out tomorrow. It's like I've got to wait a year. Um, it feels like Stranger Things. So that did bother me a little bit. But I think that overall, you know, since you know that they're leaning into this version, they're they're realizing that they are in between two chapters that was the entire focus from the beginning. They knew that they wanted the initial movie to be the introduction to everything where everything is still fun and young and, you know, Miles is just getting started and being Spider-Man. And then here, this is dealing with the real aftermath of what it means to be a superhero um, and to be involved in the larger than life problems that you have to deal with when you have powers and, when you realize all of the things that were going on around you that you weren't previously a part of. Now it's like, it's not just crime that Miles is having to deal with. It's like possible unraveling of the world that he's in and every other world and every other dimension. You know, we're dealing with interdimensional travel and time travel. It's, it's a lot to fit in one movie. So you know, like I said, like I get why it is moodier and also why it ends on a cliffhanger, although I didn't love ending in the cliffhanger. You know, I, I think that it works. And I, I and the reason I say that is that, again, the Empire Strikes Back, uh, the two towers, you know, um, there are plenty of stories that have three parts to them uh, where you do need each part. You know, Dune was only part one of two, and you're going to need the second part to, you know, get the full story. And so I think this, I had no problem with this being a middle chapter and, and having a cliffhanger, you know, especially when that this ends with us going to Earth 42 and seeing the repercussions of that spider being taken from that Earth to Miles's Earth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that by that spider being gone, the miles on Earth 42 is the prowler there. 
Um, you know, I thought that was all really great. And, and I also, you know, I, I think one of the things that you rightly pinpointed was that this movie isn't just trying to be the previous film. It's legitimately trying to take everything that happened in the previous film and then move everything forward, one up it in a way that it's not just like, oh, we're just going to be bigger and better. We're actually going to, you know, take the story and complicate it and make it a more important story in some ways, in the sense of, you know, we're talking about much bigger issues, like the idea of free will and predestination and, you know, really what it means to have these powers and, and do, you know, certain events have to happen in our lives. And I mean, all of these type of things. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that also creates an underlying question of, you know, then if, if there are really canon events is, is any kind of meddling in another universe playing, god in some ways i mean there's just all mm -hmm. these type of questions so and who made miguel god by the it, way <laughs> exactly exactly and, and other than the fact that he was the first one to realize that this was the case you know mm -hmm. so no it's a great question and he has kind of appointed himself god of 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 this you know society and he's leader of the tva <laughs> yeah it's kind of it's a great point you know it's very similar right mm-hmm um, and man, that's a great point. It actually is <laughs> the you. same exact thing. They're, they're chopping off anomalies, uh, that happen so that the, you know, quote unquote official timeline can, can move forward. And so, mm -hmm. no, it, that's a great poll, um, which makes sense. It's all Marvel. But then, you know, with this middle chapter, we're also left with one of the things that will help in our resolution, which to me was very exciting, this idea of creating a new team that will be most likely not only responsible for rescuing Miles or helping to rescue Miles, but also uh, find maybe a new way of protecting the Spider-Verse. You know, we've got old friends like Noir Spider-Man or Spider-Ham and, um, you know, Peter B. Parker all mm -hmm. coming there to 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 help Gwen figure this out. And I absolutely loved being left on that cliffhanger because I am. A, if there was one thing about the movie that I, I was thinking to myself, oh, I'm just kind of missing. It's it's the fact that there were so many characters from the previous movie that I thought we would see again and then we didn't until the very end. But then I'm like, oh, good. I'm glad that, you know, we set this movie up to set up all these characters we needed, but that some of those favorites are now going to be coming back to the third film. It, it Again, it, it, it just kind of like, it. they're very much mirroring, you know, Star Wars in that sense where the original trilogy um, you know, the, the, the second movie has some new characters and stuff that we need to introduce you to, but then the third movie is really about bringing it all back together and some old favorites come back and, you know, everybody gets together and we figure it all out. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just, it, I think what it was great at is that it just leaves you excited for what's going to happen. Um, and then at the same time, um, it does leave you with this sense of like, 
unresolution because we do want to see that third film now. Like, and everybody's going to want to see that third film, especially after this. And so, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, and I will say to echo what you said about the, uh, the team coming back together. I was so glad they brought back Peter B. Parker and that now he's got Mayday, his daughter. Yes. Which I thought yes. was so funny. Um, and just a an interesting addition to the team as well, because it just adds a whole other dynamic. They didn't go the silly route like they could have with her. Like at first I was worried they were going to go more of like the Incredibles route with Jack-Jack, but they didn't. You know, it's really more just that he's trying to be a good dad and also save the world. And he's like, well, right. I was told to watch baby so i guess i'm bringing her with me yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i made her a hat (laughs) well but i also thought that the the best part about that is is that and this is another one of those i think linchpin pieces of information is that miles's connection with peter b parker is something that's made his life better you know, uh, it was, and and Peter says this, right? It, me knowing you is what made me want to have a kid in the first place because you were great. And I wanted my kid to hopefully be like you. I realized I could have a kid. I could yeah. be a mentor. You know, I could do it. Yeah. So, um, so I can do it on command. <laughs> um, so it, I just thought it was, you know, that's. That's something that's so cool because what it shows is the way in which we can have such incredible impacts on each other's lives and that if we never took a chance about of of trying to be a part of somebody's life and to get to know them and interact with them and care for them that their life might be worse for us not having known them. Right. That's mm-hmm. the that would be the goal. I, I think we would all have with with every part of our life. And Miles has had that impact on Peter B. Parker's life. And I think it's just a, it's a great testament to the fact of how much one person can one person's life can have on another in such a beautiful way. Uh, and so and I think that's one of the things, too, that. Is kind of you know, missing from Miguel's formula. And I think maybe, you know, might be one of the keys then in some way to where we go next in the third film beyond the Spider-Verse, which I think helps even the name helps us see that, that we're going to transcend this idea of what we think we know to something that we didn't realize we didn't know, but now that we know changes everything. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, which is, isn't that what, you know, human discovery is all about? You know, we, we learn something we didn't know that changes everything. So, oh yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you too, Obviously, the 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 needle drop soundtrack in the previous movie was huge. I mean, it blew up the charts and was a very important part of the the feel of the previous film. 
And so I wanted to ask you what you thought of the new Spider Mix for this movie. Uh, did it work for you as well as the first one? Did you like it as much? Uh, you know, where? How did it leave you feeling? I think that this one was still definitely good. I just don't think it was quite as good as the first one, um, just because it didn't have as many huge recognizable songs that I'm going to keep playing on repeat. But it definitely kept the same feel of the first movie. And I think overall, the thing that you want is, you know, the the reminder that this is the movie about the black Spider-Man. And so they went with a lot of black artists to do the music. Um, you know, some big names, obviously, with like Offset, Wizkid, ASAP Rocky, Lil Wayne, Nas, um, and still wanted to keep that like hip hop, um, inner city feel to the music, um, and brought back the same composer as well with Pemberton. So, like I said, I think it was consistent and I definitely think it was good. It just wasn't quite as memorable for me. What about you? No, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I think that this movie, because it is dealing with a much uh, kind of moodier tone, the music represents that as well. And so therefore, mm -hmm. you don't quite get as many, you know, kind of upbeat and, and fun songs that we got in the first movie. And that's that's just because of where this movie is. I mean, you know, the soundtrack for Empire Strikes Back as compared to Star Wars is much moodier and darker and, and full of, you know, kind of uh, themes that that don't feel as like happy go lucky because that's the movie, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the mu music here adequately and correctly represents that. But it does mean that it wasn't quite as much fun or didn't leave me with those songs that I was thinking, oh, I think I'm going to want to put that on a playlist now, mm -hmm. um, but did the job that it, you needed it to do. And I, I, again, too, like Daniel Pemberton, like you mentioned, his soundtrack is the same way. Uh, his work, I think, works perfectly for the film, but it's also not one that I think to myself, oh, I want to listen to this, you know, outside the movie. And they're... Mm -hmm. That's also a good score. A good score doesn't have to be one that I want to listen to outside of the film. It's just the way that it complements what's happening on film. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, does that perfectly. And so, therefore, neither of these is not a success. It's just not the same as the first movie. And that's completely okay because it means that they weren't just trying to do the same thing over again. That they truly were thinking about this in terms of what does this movie need, not how do we make another hit album. Right. Exactly. Uh, lastly, I, you know, I we could, uh, and you probably know way more than this than I do, but I, I thought it was just so fun how it felt like you could probably freeze frame every frame and catch an Easter egg that, you know, Die Hard, Spider-Man, Marvel fans of the comics could point out to you, whether it was all mm -hmm. the characters and everything. And I, I just, it left me realizing just how much time and effort 
had been put into this film because those Easter eggs, and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, I think also just represent the incredible amount of talent has been poured into every frame of this movie when it comes to uh, the way it looks and the way it feels, the way it sounds, all the decisions that have been made with, of course, the animation. Because, you know, in animation, absolutely nothing, literally nothing that happens on screen is an accident. Somebody has drawn that. Mm -hmm. Somebody has done that in a computer specifically on purpose. So it just, and when we, and, and those massive you know, animated sequences where we're seeing, you know, thousands of spider characters. It just was blowing my mind. So I just could not give this movie more praise on that front because I just think that it's truly one of the most unique and incredible things I've ever seen when it comes to pushing the boundaries of what it means to be an animated film in the same way that Walt Disney was doing all the way back when he made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and completely revolutionizing animation. I think this movie is doing the same thing. Absolutely. It's visually stunning. And I want to definitely call attention to what you were saying about the amount of different characters that were jam packed into the background I think, you know, of that scene where you first see the Spider-Verse or the Spider-Society um, and, you know, Miles is walking through. It's incredible how much time it must have taken to draw in all of the different ones that you see and then the ones that are further into the background and making them all look so distinctly different. Um, it, the length of the list of all of the different Easter eggs. I won't read it out to you on this podcast, but you can go look at it online. It's long. <laughs> and, you know, if you're really steeped in the Spider-Man comics, you probably know way more of them than I do. But, uh, I mean, just, you know, people out there. But I was really fascinated to see how many they included. And I loved just the the callbacks as well to things like the live-action movies, you know, yeah, absolutely. Andrew Garfield appearing, Tobey Maguire, um, even making mention of Doctor Strange is just a throwaway line, but was yeah, funny. That was awesome. Um, it was a really great love letter as well to all that came before it. So I liked that. And the surprise of all surprises, who expected we would see Donald Glover as an alternate version of the Prowler? Oh, that was fantastic. Sitting in that his was little so prison. Fantastic. Dude, it's rude to stare. <laughs> well, and and what makes that so great is the way in which that references the other Marvel Spider Man movies that have been done, right? Uh recently. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're part of the MCU, but they're also a part of uh Marvel here. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the MCU. And so I love, love, love that. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That was so much fun. And it's one of those things where I think people are just going to have a blast, you know, especially when this movie gets put on 4k one day mm -hmm. at home, you're going to see, uh, the, you're going to see this and you're just going to be astounded by what you can pull out. And so I think it's amazing. I guess, you know, that leads me to ask the the 
you know, big question, which is, what are you going to rate Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse? So I thought a lot about this because it does have so much about it that's so impressive. And really my, any possible gripes I had with it are small. So I still come back wanting to rewatch this movie and also eventually to watch all three in order um, and really get the feel for how they fit together. Um, so I think ultimately I still end up giving this a four out of five Peter Porkers because I missed seeing Spider-Ham um, until the end. But also, you know, it just it does have a feel all its own. It really stands out from the original because, you know, we're definitely getting higher stakes this time. And they've once again blown us away with the art. I mean, the partnership between comic book artists and animators um, and the writing just fits so well together. And I have to add, one of my favorite artists of all time actually got to work on this movie Brian Stelfreeze, whose art book is in my living room, um, actually helped um, bring to life Jessica Drew on screen. So That's I thought great. that was really cool. So if you yeah. like the way Jessica Drew looks, you can thank Brian Stelfreeze. You know, I think um, that this movie, I mean, I I would call this movie practically perfect in every way. It's like the Mary Poppins of films right now. I, I just... I it's five out of five spider people like it's so good nice and I cannot wait to see it again I mean there wasn't anything this movie I felt like to me could do better um I didn't even mind the the running time because I was never bored ever Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like all the moments where things slowed down were just the right amount to give weight to the relationships that you needed, to the conversations that needed to be having. Um, you know, it, it again, it made me think of the way in which The Empire Strikes Back has those slower moments that you absolutely need, you know, especially when you go to Dagobah and Luke and, and Yoda are talking and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean... This movie is just phenomenal and it and it deserves to be seen on the biggest screen possible. So if you for some reason are listening to this and you have not gone to see this film, you gotta go see this movie. It's amazing. And so I yeah, I just couldn't recommend it more. It, it it's to me, you know, uh there are movies that I was expecting to be good going in. This is definitely one of them. Uh I think you know, uh, from what we know of the Mission Impossible movies recently, with Dead Reckoning Part One c- coming out, I'm I'm thinking, okay, this is possibly a five star film coming out. Uh, you know, Chris Nolan's new movie Oppenheimer coming out, that's a possible five star film, may- maybe. But man, I think this movie just hit it in every way it could possibly hit it, and uh, especially for being a middle film. And uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't have wanted more. So, well, Chrissy, we're at that time of the show where we give some recommendations. So I am excited to see what you want to recommend to everybody this week. So I'm going to do kind of a different recommendation this time and just kind of go off of the 
inspiration from this movie, and that's to tell you to check out more comic book artists. And sometime, if you can, go to an event where they will be having tables and you could get something commissioned. Even just the newer people that are there, you know, doing the con circuit can do some really awesome custom commission drawings that are are not super expensive, Um, you know, all the way up to then the professional level ones. But um, some of the artists that worked on this movie that got to also come back and animate their own character on screen, like I said, was uh, Rick Leonardi that did Spider-Man 2099. Um, there was an artist named Chris Anka that worked on the movie. Brian Stelfreeze, like I said, worked on Jessica Drew. And then actually the surprise for me above all of them was a 14-year-old Canadian animator named Preston who had submitted fan art of the Lego World version that they loved so much they commissioned him to come and work on this movie. Oh, that's great. A 14-year-old kid. It's amazing. And he got to work on, you know, an animated movie. So, it, you know, he gets to still feel like he's kind of doing something fun. I think that that's so cool. So I highly recommend checking out all of the comic book artists that worked on this movie, but especially Brian Stelfreeze. Um, and then, you know, of course, the original people that created Spider-Man as well. So um, hope that if you haven't gotten super into comics and comic art, that that'll get you more interested in it. That's awesome. I'm going to recommend everybody. Uh, my wife and I have been going back and rewatching all of the Mission Impossible movies in preparation for Dead Reckoning Part 1. Mm. So I'm going to recommend going back and doing that. Skip 2, of course, uh, because it's not <laughs> worth watching. Uh, but it, they're just, it, they really are great films. Uh, and it's surprising to me rewatching them. Just once you hit that third film, every movie just continues to get better and better. And it just, it's astounding. And I don't really know if there is a better director for action films than Christopher McQuarrie, uh, you know, and so I can't wait to see the new one. Of course, going back to listen to all of the 602 Club episodes, too, that we've covered all of the Mission Impossible films as well. So check that mm-hmm. out. Um, but we can't wait for that. But Christy, before we get there, if people want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on these days, where would they find you? You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Bespin Bell. And then, of course, in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And when I'm not here in the 602 Club, of course, you can hear me on my finished podcast, Sabres and Spells, on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And what about you? You can find me all over the place on social media under the name MattRushing02, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero. Those are the places I'm most active. So, Please follow me there, interact with me there. I'd love to catch up with you. Here on the network, you'll find me doing a bunch of other shows, literary treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, The Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Warp 5 about Star Trek Enterprise, The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard, and Saddle Up is about to return because Star Trek Strange New Worlds is about to come back. So you'll want to catch up with that show and of course we'll have new episodes coming out for that very soon and you can also find me over on the nerd party network i've got two shows there 
One is about Harry Potter, talked about every single chapter of that series, one chapter at a time. And then you'll find me doing Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast that I do with John Mills. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.